Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. There's something about the power of family connections, isn't there? Either good or bad, they influence our life tremendously. It's an amazing thing when we feel like we've got parents who are in our corner to the end of their days, to the end of our days, and we just always know they're going to be there. You know, some of the most sacred privileges I think I get to experience in life, and many of you have experienced this, this as well, is when somebody opens up and you get to see in the depths of their soul and you get to see, for instance, uh, you know, sitting down, I remember, with a, a 90-year-old and them talking about how the abandonment of them by their parents when they were young had shaped the woundedness of their entire life. What a sacred moment to see in somebody's life. And it happens all too often, isn't it? You see these men, especially women, it happens to women too, but I, I, I've had these conversations with men who everybody would look, look at and say, that's a really great, respected, successful person. And to hear them open their heart and say, that the woundedness of not having that acceptance or that security or that rejection that happened because of that drove them their entire life, drove them in business, drove them to keep friends at a, at a safe distance, affected and impacted their marriages in negative ways. It's an amazing thing to see, isn't it? As I'm even thinking of that, I can see many faces pop before my mind. I'm sure you probably can too, of people that you know like that, right? Maybe even that face is yours when you see it in the mirror of a person who has felt that and experienced that. One face that constantly comes to my mind really quickly when I think of that is, is my Grandpa Savage. My dad always jokes for the rest of his life, will always joke, he saved my mom from the savages. And... Uh, that's just going to be something I'm going to have to smile at the rest of my life. But my grandpa Savage was this, was this man abandoned by his father at a young age, left in a time and a time and an era when it was difficult for a mother to make a living. And so he bounced from relative to relative's home, trying to be raised and dealt his whole life. And even as a young elementary age per kid, I, I remember it was so obvious, the woundedness of his life and the fact that here's this really loved man by not only his family, but by the community around him. Here's this really loved man, and yet everything that drives him was trying to find that place of security, that place of love and that place of wanting to be, to, to being wanted in his life. Today, as we continue our series on on uh, following the goose. We're using the goose, which is the Celtic symbol for the Holy Spirit, and talking about how we get to know and follow the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at a scripture today that talks to us and answers that question of how the Holy Spirit comes to us to meet that need in our life. But at the same time, this text is also going to show us one of the main things that until we wrestle with this issue, until we settle this issue in our minds... It'll constantly undermine what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our life to make us feel loved and make us feel secure. Actually, if I had to choose, have you ever had this choice given to you? Has anybody ever come to you and said, if you were sent into exile or sent to prison or whatever, 
And, in, you know, growing up in the Cold War era, it was if the Soviets ever take over and you could only have one chapter of Scripture, what would it be? Well, i got to tell you, today's chapter, Romans 8, would at least make the short list, if not be that verse for you. Paul, in writing Romans, starts off by describing sin and how it affects us all. He then moves on and describes how religion is really dead. Our pursuit of faith through morality really just leaves us wanting and dead, and it's not the answer. Then he talks about what faith is and what it really means for us to have faith and how we have faith in relationship and have a vital, real relationship with God. And Romans 8 is actually the centerpiece, the culmination of his argument, of his whole, everything he's doing, this is the culmination of what he's saying. And interestingly enough, Romans 8 is all about the Holy Spirit. We've said before, based upon Jesus' teachings in earlier parts of the series, that the Holy Spirit is the centerpiece of what it means to follow Jesus. Our relationship, our ability to know and be led by the Spirit is the centerpiece of what it means to follow God. And Paul is saying the same thing as Jesus says. He says in verse 9, he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Skipping to verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And Paul's setting up this astounding difference, this contrast, again for us, between faith as morality and faith as relationship. And he's saying the whole issue is... What can your life be like if you truly surrender to the leadership of the Holy Spirit in your life? How rich, how full, how amazing if you follow the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, how much more can you expect transformation and beauty to happen in your life as well? This is really the wow of being a Christian. This is the centerpiece of it. It goes on in verse 12. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean, debtors to the flesh? Let's try to put that in common language and some common illustrations of how we would actually experience that. We live life trying to meet needs or desires or longings or drives, whatever you want to call them in our life that consume us, the the desire to prove ourselves, to be worthy, the desire to feel secure, the, the want in our lives to be accepted, to be approved, to be loved. We live our lives for those things. Barnes & Noble bookstore, the shelves are chock full of books on how can we have good self-esteem, right? And all the books basically say the same thing, just in different ways. Isn't it amazing how you can write the same thing and make a million here and then somebody else write the same thing and make another million there and it feels brand new. I want to do that someday. But they all basically say this. Here's the way to self-esteem. You define a goal. You identify and learn what skills you need to have in order to succeed at that goal. You start simple. You achieve small wins. You add a few wins on that. And then you visualize the positive. You make yourself remember the positive And you speak the positive. You just focus on the positive. Right? 
And that leads to good self-esteem. That's what all the books tell you. So you don't need to buy any of those books anymore because that's what every single one's going to tell you. But what happens when you can't perform? How do you deal with the negative? Especially when the negative is not just accidental failure, but it's failure on your part because of character or sin in your life, right? Doesn't positive thinking at that moment in life feel like hollow political spin, mind games instead of genuineness? You have a hard time convincing yourself that I should feel positive about myself. And further, where does that leave us, that kind of approach to self-esteem? Where does that leave your confidence the minute after the achievement is done? You see, there's this debtor cycle. There's this hole that constantly needs to be filled in our lives. You get one done with one achievement, well, you got to do another. Otherwise, you're not going to continue to feel good about yourself. And, and this, this affects us in our relationships, too, in several ways. One of them is when you get offended, you end up being this debtor to this cycle of salvaging your reputation. Or you end up being this debtor to this need to prove that this is unjust and prove what's right, right? We put a lot of our time and emotional energy in that in order to what? Make ourselves feel okay, find peace, be full, right? We even have this debtor cycle in something as simple as giving and receiving, right? If somebody gives you an act of kindness or a gift, you say thank you, but don't you honestly at the depths of your being struggle consistently with feeling like I owe them, now I have to return this, I have to do something. There's this debtor cycle that means I have to pay something to balance this relationship, right? We feel that, this debtor cycle. Why do we struggle with those feelings? Why do we find ourselves constantly owing payment to those feelings in our life in order to live at peace. I mean, it's the, the purely psychological way of developing self-esteem is inherently deficient because we're not always good. We're not always performing. We're not always going to achieve. And we sin and we know it. You don't need, we don't need a preacher to tell us we sin. Every single one of us knows we do. And there's this vacuum in our lives of sin. There's this vacuum of deficiency. There's this vacuum of always needing to achieve, of always needing to balance. It creates this debtor cycle that leaves us never satisfied and constantly striving, constantly having to pursue more. Paul describes the debt cycle approaching, approach meeting desires for love in the next verse. He says in verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so what he's saying is the same Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, puts to death or makes that debt cycle cease to be needed in your life. How does it do it? Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Daddy, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Can you see yourself as Mia? Abandoned on a doorstep, 
in this great big world in which she's helpless, wounded, broken. Some of us have a hard time imagining that because we're doers, we're achievers, and and we just pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and keep going. But the reality of life, if we allow ourselves to honestly face it, is that we live in this big world and we are nothing in the face of it. We are not in control. We are left to the forces around us in life. It doesn't matter how successful we've been in business. It doesn't matter how successful we've been at raising a great family or creating a great family culture. Can you imagine feeling the feeling as well of someone wanting you just like the Schraders wanted Mia, who for years before they knew her were pursuing and sacrificing and dreaming and crying from joy and praying and just desiring and wanting Mia? Can you imagine someone who's so eager to sacrifice at that level, not just to love you, but to adopt you, to make you one of their own? Not just to foster you until something better came along or until things got too rough and they needed to send you somewhere else, but to love you, to let them call you daddy or mama, just like their own. And to be their heir. All that's theirs is yours. Can you allow the Holy Spirit to come to you and become that personal and that real to you? That's what Paul is saying he wants us to experience. The God of the universe adopts you as his very own child. Such perfect love. Such magnitude of acceptance. Such amazing beauty. Such beautiful security. And the debt cycle is killed, not by your own achievement or your positive self-talk, but by someone who personally, through the Holy Spirit, makes real the fact that you are indeed secure as a child of God, that everything will one day be yours. You no longer have to worry about being accepted You no longer have to worry about proving yourself. You no longer have to worry about bouncing from foster home to foster home, from friendship to friendship, or job to job, or relationship to relationship, because you are secure, and your inheritance is secure. Isn't the idea of being pursued like that compelling, beautiful? Isn't it the hope that every abandoned child and every orphan in the world has and every one of us here dreams as the ideal for life? So, if you've been in church for a while, especially this church, you've heard this before, right? You've heard it a lot. Uh, Dusty shared it in his message in January and Wendy shared it in hers and Jeremy's talked about the same concept about how much God loves us and practically every sermon I talk about talks about this to a certain extent. Why? Because it's a truth that I don't think we can hear enough of because we have such a hard time receiving it. When we look at Romans 8, 
we'd like to focus on all the famous verses because it's chock full of famous verses. We focus on the first couple verses. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then we focus on the middle passages like we talked about just now and read just now about being adopted as children. And we love those. And then we focus on the ending passages like verse 28 where it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And we skip down. We love this verse. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And we skip down even further. And we love this one. We, we, we sing about it. We quote it. No, it says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are some of the most quoted, some of the most written about, some of the most sung about passages in Scripture. And yet there's a section we skipped over. N.T. Wright writes a commentary on Romans 8, and in it he shares a personal story. N.T. Wright's a walker. He walks every day for exercise, has for many, many, many years. And he talks about how he hiked daily through the woods. And he'd always take one of two routes every day and and stuff. And he'd been hiking for 16 years. And all of a sudden, one day, he's walking by this place. And he notices over here this this kind of stump. It's not really a tree. It's actually something that somebody put there at some point. But it's a stump over kind of in the bush. You can't see what it's like. And But he's in a hurry like we all are. And so he just says, i got to hurry because i got to get my exercise, go back to work. So... You know, about a year or so later, whenever, so, sometime later, he's walking by again, and all of a sudden the sun hits it differently, and he sees on there that there's this Roman numeral five, and he goes, oh, that's kind of interesting. You know, I should check that out sometime, but he's in a hurry. So he gets back and finishes his walk, and a couple months later, somebody had moved all the brambles and the bushes around it, and he walks closer, and he sees that it's open to view, and he starts to see there's more than just the V of the Roman numeral five there, there's... There's more, and as he gets closer, he sees I-E-W, view. And he goes, wow, this is an old marker for an old trail. And he that day decides, well, if there's a view, I'm going to go see it. So he goes through the brambles and gets a little torn up and gets through that and gets through the other side, and he gets into the deep part of the forest, and he's jumping trees and following what looks like an old path for a long time. He's just walking and walking, and then all of a sudden, the path takes a turn and takes these switchbacks up this big hill, little mountain, whatever it is. And he climbs up to the top through the forest, and all of a sudden comes to this opening in the trees. And he finds himself on a rock ledge overlooking the entire valley, valley, and it takes his breath away. It's just this beautiful, beautiful view of the town and the valley. And he starts to kick himself going, how could I walk by this for 16 plus years and miss this amazing place? And he just was kicking himself for not looking at the tree, the, the, the stump earlier and taking this neglected overlooked path. And then he makes this comment. He says, the part we just read about the Holy Spirit bringing adoption to us, so often that's the part we love, but then we look at the next part and it's this overlooked path that really is this important view that's crucial that unless we get this view in our life and settle it, we no longer get, we don't get to experience the previous that we've talked about. So where we left the text off before, it said, we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And then we go on, it says, provided 
we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Skipping to verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And the choice Paul is giving us as to whether we will really be willing to live with patience and hope in the reality of what the world is right now or not. You see, when we really think about it, isn't our insecurity in life, our not feeling loved, our striving for acceptance, our fear of failure, our fear of rejection, not being good enough, isn't that all a result of how we view suffering? You know, I, I can look at my life and look at the examples when I used to work on the farm growing up as a kid and see many times when I, I should have been injured really badly in farm accidents and, and God rescued me and saved me. And then, and then I look at my college roommate who's climbing this rock wall that he could have climbed without ropes and he gets killed in a freak rock slide accident. I look at the guy that I talked about a couple weeks ago who moved, who walked into our church one day for the first time with a brain tumor and was healed of it. And then I look at our friend Kim who died of cancer a little over a year ago, leaving four young children. And I, I, you wrestle with that stuff. What are your stories of suffering? What are your stories of disillusionment with life or with God? I suspect many of you have far more painful experiences than I've had. Maybe you've faced cancer or are facing cancer right now. Maybe, maybe you've been unjustly fired and maligned and had problems with career because of that. Maybe you've experienced infidelity. You've experienced things that are out of your control. And when we get in those situations, we wonder where God is in all of it. In those situations, we feel insecure. And we don't trust the fact that our inheritance as children of God, is secure. Instead, we get a little angry with God, right? I mean, just to be honest, we see injustice and we start going, how can God be loving with that injustice? If he healed others, then why not here? If he accomplished everything on the cross, did everything perfectly, then, then why do we have all this that we have to deal with? And we can read the words of Paul and we can hear the arguments of people saying, well, he completed it all, but it won't be fully done until he comes back. And we're living in this time when we're redeemed and we're loved and the kingdom of God's breaking in, but it's not fully here where we're justified as just as if we had not sinned. And yet we know we sin and God is working progressively to, to sanctify us or, or redeem us or heal us. Or, and we can look at all the things that he triumphed over death, but we still have death and we know those realities and when they're just words, it doesn't do very good for us in the face of the feelings of cancer or ALS or Alzheimer's or being maligned or hurt or having somebody betray us. 
It's hard in those moments to believe we are loved as children. But what Paul's inviting us to here is until we settle the big picture view of life, until we settle in our hearts what that big picture view shows us, that all of creation is groaning, and then in face of that, we no longer doubt God's goodness. Until we settle the security of our inheritance as children of God, that one day all of this pain will indeed be resolved, but it's not fully resolved now. Until we settle this expectation that we do indeed experience the kingdom of God breaking in and doing miracles and doing amazing things in our life, but yet it doesn't happen every time like we want it to or all the time. And until we settle that big picture view of life that Paul is painting here for us, we won't find the rest and we won't find the trust of God and the experience of God we long for. Paul is saying to us, the Holy Spirit makes real our adoption to ensure our inheritance. He uses other metaphors elsewhere. One place he uses the, the metaphor of a, like a kingly seal, like you've seen that in some of the old movies. The, the king makes an edict and he puts his wax on it and he seals it. And this is forever going to be true and going to be done at all costs, no matter what. He also uses the metaphor from a financial world that the Holy Spirit to us is like a deposit guaranteeing what is to come, the future, everything being resolved. How often do you return in difficulty when you're facing difficulty to the beauty, yes, the frustration, but the beauty of this view of life, the complete view, the view that recognizes the seal guaranteeing what is to come and yet also recognizes the unfinished nature of the world we live in and the suffering that goes along with. That's what Paul is inviting us to settle in our hearts, to stop arguing in our hearts with the pain and the frustration and the reality of what is. Because to not settle this issue is a lot like we all know people who have been adopted, right? We all know people who are absolutely adored by their families, couldn't be more adored, couldn't be more a part of their family, and yet to not settle this issue is to like to be one of those kids who is absolutely adored and yet tragically live our whole life anticipating being unadopted. That's how tragic living life is, the way we live it so often. All too often we refuse to see this big picture and let it be settled in our heart that God is loving us along the way and we neglect this path. And because of it, we don't get to experience all that God wants to give us. When we settle this big picture issue, it, it changes something in our hearts. And it changes something in our behavior. It allows us to more quickly, in difficulty, turn towards our Father in heaven, more consistently turn towards him. And when we do that, we find his help. The text goes on to say this, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This text Paul's teaching us says we groan, we all of creation groans, and the Holy Spirit groans right along with us. 
identifying with us, stepping in on our behalf, interceding for us, going to bat for us. And when we settle this issue of the reality of what life really is, we get to experience a greater measure of the Holy Spirit's help in our life. It goes on in verse 27, the next verse. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, the Spirit interceding for us, we've talked a little bit about the gift of tongues in a private prayer portion. That this is, this, is, this is applicable to how that applies to our lives and makes a difference. But it's far more than that. It's, it's when we just sit and we can't even do anything but feel the pain. We're wrestling with stuff and all we can do is sit and wrestle with it and we, we are in this fog wondering and there's this, this lack of clarity about God's will. This text is saying the Spirit is there interceding, praying the will of God on our behalf. Isn't that amazing? When we don't know what it was, when, what it is, when all we can do is feel the weight of life around us, the Spirit of God is there praying on our behalf the perfect will of God. And that's how we get to the life giving, breathtaking view of life that we love in verses like 28, the next verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We love to take that verse out of context a lot of times. But unless we settle the big picture view, we no longer allow the suffering of creation to cause us to doubt our adoption we miss most of the love and the help God wants to give us through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. In fact, we miss so many opportunities to see Him show up in life where God wants to resolve things through divine intervention because we're caught in the brambles of life. We don't see this big picture and we get angry with God. When you get in that place of frustration and anger and you don't see this picture, where then is your faith to even want to pray in those moments? You see, in those moments of wondering if God really does love us, how eager and confident are you that God even wants to work through you to bring His salvation, to bring His power to touch somebody else's life, to bring healing to someone else, to heal somebody's emotions, to bring comfort for them when they're facing injustice or wisdom for them when they need wisdom as to how to respond. How confident are we that God will even work through us in those moments? You see, in those moments when we're questioning, we don't feel like people of faith, so we typically don't pray. We don't even make room for the Holy Spirit to show up. And if we do pray, we pray with this hollow sense in us that we just gut it out and we do it with really little expectation that anything is going to happen. And we miss opportunities for the kingdom of God, the beauty of God, to interrupt our world right now and bring more progress towards restoration in our lives and the lives of people around us. But when we settle this issue, it frees us to turn toward God with such faith and with, with such security. It frees us to exercise more faith, to pray more readily and give God even greater chances to interrupt our lives and the lives of those we love to show Himself true and strong. 
Now, I know, I know all the arguments surrounding this whole issue and this, the, the settling this issue. I and mean, we got all these questions surrounding it. Why did God just not make things all right all at once when he came the first time? Why wait another several thousand years and several thousand years of suffering and people being lost? And how can that be a loving in his plan? I mean, those are all real questions we deal with. And frankly, they're tough, mostly unanswerable questions. That's part of our struggle with settling this issue is they are unanswerable questions. I guess one thought, even though it, it's, it's just such a minuscule argument in the face of those questions, if he had made everything right all at once and he'd ended things right then, then you and I would have never existed and you and I would never have had the opportunity to experience the love of God. And that still doesn't answer well all the other people who never did experience throughout history. That still leaves that tension. I understand that there. But I have to look in my own life and say the price of the suffering, the price of the pain I've faced in my own life does not at all compare to the experience of that love. And I know my life has been easy compared to many people. I've had conversations with people who have seen the horrors of war and been damaged by that. I've had conversations with people who have had been in concentration camps and experienced that type of terror and horror and just brutality. And Paul, when he writes this, he himself too is no stranger to suffering. Paul writes this in the context of him having been beaten nearly to death on several occasions unjustly having experienced hunger and famine, having been shipwrecked multiple times in his life, persecution, imprisonment, in jail cells that we would think are hor horrible today. Yet Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, whatever power you're facing and facing off against, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Dusty, if you could come. Let's pray. Father, this is such a difficult thing for us to face and settle on our own, this whole view of the world that... You are good, you have redeemed everything, and yet there still is this time where things are not perfected and there is indeed suffering. And Lord, words alone can't settle that. So I pray that your spirit would come to each one of us and that as you pour out your love in our hearts and we experience you, would you give us a confidence and a settledness of heart that we wouldn't continue to doubt your goodness. That when difficulty faces us, we would live in the assurance of your love for us. And that your inheritance 
is guaranteed for us. The resolution of all things is guaranteed for us. And that we would live patiently during this time following you. Why don't you just take a moment and and just ask God's Spirit to come to you and show you where He wants to speak to you in regard to this whole message today and how He wants to show you His love. I'm just going to give you a moment to sit with that. Lord, make this real to us. Come by your Spirit and touch each and every one of us in the places of wounding, in the places of hurt, and bring a peace and a settledness that we can face the suffering and that we would turn to you. And because we turn to you, that we would experience even more deeply your help that you are so avidly offering us. And the Lord, not just for us, but we would respond to you with faith that you can meet the needs of the loved ones around us. You can meet the needs of even our enemies around us through us, that you can pray, you can use us to pray and your power and your presence would become known that your Holy Spirit would communicate your great love and your pursuit of even those who are our enemies. And the Lord through us, your kingdom would shine bright and would interrupt our worlds at an even greater rate because because we turn to you, not away from you. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you back next week. We're going to look at... um, how when we feel like the Holy Spirit's talking to, us, talking to us or communicating with us or leading us, how we test that to really know it's really Him. It's going to be a really interesting conversation. But today as well, I think the most tragic thing in life would be to walk through our entire lives and not realize that God wants to adopt us in that way. If you're here today and you have not made the decision to follow Jesus, I want to invite you, if you're ready to make that decision to do so today, if you're not ready to make that decision today, then I want you to invite you to at least pray this prayer. Holy Spirit, would you make yourself real to me that I can know that you're really, really that kind of God toward me regardless of my questions, in spite of my questions. Would you make yourself real? And I think the other simple response for us today before we leave is we've just talked about the fact that God is our Father. He's our Dad. And if you came here with a hurt, a frustration, if God is your dad, you're not going to leave until you have a chance to take that to him. We had a a healing a couple weeks ago. A a gal, Mary, his leg was healed. We don't even know who prayed for her. She just came down. Somebody prayed for her. We don't even know to this still yet who prayed for her. God wants to work through each and every one of you to do things like that in people's lives to bring healing, whether it's physical or emotional or to bring wisdom. So I want to invite you before you leave today, if you came with a need, if there's a hurt, a sickness, something in your life that you would turn to a friend and ask them to pray for you. Give God a chance to touch you. 
And if you're not comfortable, if you don't have a friend here, then we'll have some elders here and some people that we trust for prayer, either here or in the back area for prayer. But let's go this week and let's just settle this issue. And let's be people of faith that we don't miss opportunities for God to interrupt our reality, no matter how difficult it is. But we trust his love for us as a father so much. Trust that our inheritance is secure, that everything will one day be resolved so much that we take a whole lot more risks to pray and turn towards God and let him interrupt our daily lives. God bless. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.